Church, if you were to, um, I'm not recommending doing this, but if you were to go around to start asking all your Christian friends, how's your prayer life? I mean, maybe you should do that. But you know what the answer is going to be, and I only know this because people do it to me and I do it to other people. They're going to say, it, eh, it could be better. Even if it actually might be awesome. Somebody may have a prayer life, but nobody ever feels like they are fully adequate for the task of having a great prayer life. I've never met anybody who went, my prayer life is awesome. I'm right up there with Jesus. You ever met that person? Because <laughs> in, in, rea- in reality, we, we, are, um, we are not up to the task. It's, uh, but I'm not, I, I don't want to beat us up this morning. If you want to get beat up over your prayer life, there's a lot of books out there that would be glad to beat you up over your prayer life. Tell you how terrible it is and what you're doing wrong and how to do it right. And, and then you can't even keep up with whatever it is they're trying to tell you to do. And, and then you just feel worse than you did before you started reading the book. You, it wasn't even helpful. There's a lot of those out there. Um, I don't want to do that. I want to encourage us today. I, I want us to consider something about prayer as we continue to look at the Lord's Prayer. I have a friend, pastor friend, who wakes up every morning at 4 a.m. He runs several miles to his church building. He walks around that building praying, and then he goes inside the building and prays for about another hour. Then he runs home, eats, jogs, uh, runs back home, jogs back home, eats breakfast with his kids, and then starts his day work day. And I love that the guy does this. I think it's awesome that that works for him. I'm, I think it's glad he can do it. But if that's what's required to have a godly prayer life, I'm out. <laughs> I'm just telling y'all. I, I didn't like running when I was in shape and running. And I don't know if y'all can tell, but I don't have, this is not a runner's body. And, uh, and I, I mean, The Bible gives us a lot of freedom in our Christian practice. We're given direction for worship and and for Christian living, but we're given little specific instruction on how to make that happen. And and I understand why this guy runs at 4 a.m. That works for him. But that's not a requirement for a great prayer life. In fact, the Jewish people in the Old Testament prayed three times a day. We saw this in the book of Daniel. Remember, he'd open the windows and pray out three times a day, just out there, and that's how he got in trouble. And And we know from the book of Deuteronomy that there were actually 18 memorized benediction prayers that the people in the Jewish people would memorize and pray in the synagogues. And there's nothing wrong with memorizing prayers. There's nothing wrong with praying three times a day with your windows open. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with waking up at 4 a.m. to go running and pray, unless you start bragging on it to everybody and, you know, then you like the. Uh, telling us all we need to get up at 4 a.m. and pray. Don't, don't be that guy. And, uh, but none of those things are required to have a great prayer life. We're, we're not told in Scripture whether it's better to sit or kneel or stand or to whether we should fold our hands or even if we should close our eyes. I think closing your eyes can help because it can help with concentration and those things, but there's nothing in Scripture that says, you got to do. You, you have to pray like this, you know, on your knees, like the like the old, you know, the old photo your grandma might have had hanging on her wall. Um, and we we aren't told how long we need to pray. 
We aren't told if we need to pray in the morning or the evening. We, we have freedom in those things. So if you, but if you want to have a better prayer life, there's really only two things you need to remember. We must not neglect prayer. And we must pray what Jesus said to pray. And in order to do that, we need to know what Jesus said to pray. And that's where the Lord's Prayer comes in. So let's say it again together as we did last week. And then we're going to be able to look at some of the details of this prayer. So say this with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Jesus begins this prayer, right? This is the model prayer. This is the the template for prayer. And he begins this prayer with something very unique. It's a very powerful statement. He says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, that is the King James version of the prayer, which is what most people have memorized it in, which is why I put that version up there. But if you really focus on this, you'll understand there's something incredible about this way to start a prayer because Jesus doesn't begin with a request. There's no, this isn't, it doesn't open with a petition. He begins instead by identifying the character of God, the one that we are praying to. And and at the same time, there's a challenge to our individualism in prayer because Jesus does all of this in the first two words when he says, our Father. One thing to pay close attention to is the very first word of the prayer, and it's our. It's a corporate word. It's a plural word. In fact, there are no first-person Singular pronouns in the whole prayer. You can see it. Our, us, us, our. There's a bunch of them in there. I'm missing some. We? Did you say we in there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, now, that's, this is not Jesus saying that we should only pray in public when we're all gathered together so we can have a we prayer. It's, but it is reminding us, well, I like how one writer put it, there is no I in prayer, right? literally and figuratively. And so when, we're, when we are saved by Christ, we're saved into his body, the church, and prayer is the emphasis on being part of the corporate body, and you see that through this model of prayer. And what we're being taught here isn't that we should pray, that, that we should not pray of our own needs, we should but, but we should never lose focus that the journey of the Christian life is not about us as individuals. Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. It's not an individual belief system. We are part of the family of God, our Father. And Christ is reminding us that even in our prayers, we need to remember what we are a part of, and that's the church and the kingdom of God. And because we're a family, we pray to a Heavenly Father. If we're going to pray to a Heavenly Father, I think it's important to know what it means 
to pray to God as Father. And that's where I really want to focus today. Honestly, I think this is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. The New Testament refers to God as Father 245 times. And I don't know if you know it or not, but that's a whole lot because the New Testament is not very long. And, and think about all the names of God, all the attributes of God, all the different ways God could be addressed. He's the creator who made the universe out of nothing. He's, he is the God who saved the Israelites from the Red Sea. He's the God who came in a cloud of glory in the tabernacle. He's referred to in Daniel as the ancient of days. He's the God who told Moses, no man can see my face and live. He's the God in the book of Job who's described this way. He laid the foundations of the earth. Now, this is God describing himself. Laid the foundations of the earth. Who determined its measurements? Bound the chains of Pleiades. Commands the morning. Knows the ordinances of heaven. Establishes the rule on earth. Sends forth lightning and tells it where it should go. Numbers the clouds. And Jesus said, when you pray, call him Father. Why? Because God is great, but he is not far off. He is king over everything, but he's also a God of intimacy, a God who desires communion with his adopted children, those of us that that Scripture says are grafted into the family of God at salvation. And when we call God Father because our salvation places us into that family of God, not just in a figurative sense, not in some some, uh, romanticized religious lingo. John 1, 12 tells us that, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, born of God. Turn to Romans 8. And we're going to flip around a little bit, but kind of hold on to Romans 8 because we're going to end up going back there at the end of today. In Romans 8, verse 17, it talks about this concept of being heirs in the family of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Romans 17 says we are fellow heirs with Christ. Think about the implications of that. All that Christ claims as his will belongs to all of us as well. Fellow heirs with Christ. Equal to, in the the eyes of God at salvation, as his children, we are now equal to Christ. That may sound blasphemous, but I'm just reading Romans 8, 17. This means that God loves us in the same way that he loves Christ. So we pray to our Father. And if you look down in verse 32 of Romans 8, we see it. He said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're heirs and graciously given all things by our Father. This this verse is saying that God who gave the ultimate gift of His Son for the salvation of humanity also graciously gave us everything we need. That means that God is a loving, gracious, generous Father 
who provides for the needs of his children, so we pray our Father. And this, honestly, as, as, as the more I look in this, as the more we think about it, it should amaze us every time we really sit down to consider what it means that God is our Father. Now, we've established that God is Father, but what are the implications of that? What does it mean that God is not just God, but when we think of God as Father? And I'm not even exaggerating when I say we could spend weeks looking at this concept in Scripture of God as Father, but today, turn to Psalm 103, and we're going to work through that psalm pretty quickly to see exactly what it does mean that God is Father. This is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm. It's a psalm that Brent read this morning. It's a it's a specific psalm of praise. It's a psalm of praise for those that are believers, true followers of God, that deal with the blessings of God. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 2. I started in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagle's wings. The first thing we learn from this text is that God as Father means that we have a special relationship with God. It's a covenantal relationship. Some might ask, since God is creator... Doesn't that mean he's the father of all, of all humanity? You know, I, and, and, there, and you'll hear that language used out there. As creator, yes, but Jesus actually never uses the, the term, never speaks of God as father in this, that sense. Praying to God as father is about a special relationship, a covenantal relationship with his adopted children. Think of it this way. We understand this on a fundamental level. We all do. So, when we define father just regularly, not God as father, we just talk about fathers, how do we define that? Let, let's, let's think of it on this level. Let's say a baby's born and the biological father runs off, leaves the mother, nobody knows where the guy is, leaves the mother with an infant, and some time goes by, the mother is, she, she meets a young man who falls in love with her, falls in love with this baby. He adopts the baby. He raises the child as his own. He he makes a conscious decision to make sure this child has everything that it needs. Love, affection, shelter, food, clothing, wisdom, discipline. Now that baby has grown up. It's adult. This this child, this kid has now grown into an adult. It's 25 years old. And after 25 years, the biological father shows back up for some reason, some random reason out of nowhere, says, hey, it's me, I'm your father. Who's more of a father to that kid? His biological father or his adopted father? The one who raised him. The one who was his dad, his father. See, Acts 17 says there's a sense in which everyone on earth is created by God, but only those who have a special relationship can call him father. And it's only when you enter into a particular kind of relationship with God, when you receive that relationship with God, that he becomes your father. 
And the benefits of that are listed in Psalm 103, the benefits of being the child of God. And it doesn't happen automatically. It's something you enter into. At salvation, it was what was described right here before they were baptized. It's something you're going to receive. How do we know this? Look down in verse 13. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then verse 18, to those who keep his commandments and remember to do his commandments. Now, if you remember the covenants that we talked about in the book of Genesis, those things are pretty one-sided. If you remember, if I don't know if you remember that well, that not. But in the new covenant, how are we told we'll keep the commandments? So what we're talking about the law and gospel conversation this week. How are we told we'll keep the commandments? New covenant, right? That's it. That's the only way, right? Christ in us is the only way we're going to keep the commandments. In fact, Christ kept the commandments for us. So so this is not part of salvation. This this issue of keeping the commandments is not part of salvation because that would be salvation by works. But the commandment keeping is part of our sanctification the guarantee that our Father will do what needs to happen in us to make us more like Christ. That's the promise. What it's telling us is, though, that God's not everyone's Father. He's the Father of those He has a special relationship with. Number two, we have a grace-filled relationship with God. We, We need grace. Look at verse 12. Listen, check check this grace out. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Y'all know how far that is? If you start going west, I know if you grow up in church, you've heard preachers say this a thousand times. If you start going west, you will always be going west. You can go north and eventually you'll start heading south again. But if you go east, you're always going to be going east. If you go west, you're always going to be going west. So that's how far away, infinity, that's how far it is. Verse 14, what does he know about us? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We're transgressors. That means, this this means we we were in open rebellion. But he knows we're weak. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're dust. But because God is Father, we're told... From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is those who fear Him, those who are in covenant with Him. Now, what this means is that God loves you permanently. As Father, He's not giving you up. If you're in covenant with Him, if you're a child of God, then God loves you in spite of your sin. He loves you in spite of your flaws because He's your Father. Now, this is the most fundamental thing about this truth. Your your relationship to God is not based on your performance. I'm going to repeat that because i got to be honest with you. This is an area that I struggle with, a lot of it just growing up in the culture, the religious culture, the Christian culture I grew up in. Your relationship with God is not based on your performance. I've kind of joked that I feel like there's a sense where there was a lot of teaching in the South about saved by grace but kept by works. They would never say that, but it was kind of seemed to be the practice. 
You know, oh, I mean, where you would hear things like, oh, no, that dude can't be saved. He, you know, he only goes to church 49 Sundays a year. Your relationship with God isn't based on your performance. That's why when you have one of those seasons, those dry spiritual seasons where it's been a few weeks or maybe in a few months since you prayed, and you feel like, man, I, I don't know, why in the world would God want to hear from me? It's not like we've been talking. Not like, you know, like we feel off. We feel wrong. Like, do we even have the right to approach God now after all this time? The answer is yes. He's waiting on you patiently to draw you back to him in this intimate relationship. His grace is everlasting, the text tells us. It's inexhaustible. I, I, I don't know. It, I love to hear stories. I, I love to hear presidents who had young children when they were in office tell the stories about what it was like for their kids to live in the White House. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being 12 years old and all of a sudden my dad's in the White House? I, I can't. I can't even fathom what that would be like. And, and, but there's some really funny stories about, you know, them running into, you know, meetings they probably shouldn't have been in and, those, you know, those kinds of things. You'll hear those things. And, and, um, but you know who has the greatest access to the president? It's, it's, it, it wasn't the aides or the vice president or the speaker of the House or, or, or the head of the UN or any of that. The greatest the person with the greatest access to the president is the president's kids. No one can get to the president easier than his kids. I bet you his kids could get to him easier than his wife could. The rest of the world sees that man as the leader of the free world. Those kids, that's just dad. God is still God. He's still infinite. He's still holy. He's still omnipotent and mighty and self-existent and everlasting. But Jesus said, no, because of the grace that God has granted you, you call him Father. You see how incredible that is? Because of his love for his children is everlasting, no matter what because of grace, grace gifted to us because of Christ, we can call him Father. We also have an assured relationship with God. That's what it means to call him Father. Psalm 103, 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. There's something interesting happening here, right? All right? God gets angry when we sin. The text is teaching us that. However, his anger is the anger of a loving father. He doesn't get angry quickly. And even in that anger, it's abounding with steadfast love. And his anger is always filtered through his love for us. It's, a, it's actually a form of love, because this anger is tied to him disciplining us, correcting us, chasing us, chastening us, and a loving parent will discipline their children. 
young moms and dads or future young moms and dads in here, if you love your children, you will discipline them. Look at verse, look at verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Look, whatever form of discipline you use, right? Timeout or grounding or spanking, or et cetera, whatever, you know, doing the thing that Proverbs says drives the foolishness out of the hearts that's bound up in those little hellions, right? Um, but every parent in here knows, and, and look, and, and kids know this, because we're, we're not, you know, even as kids, we, we know. There's a few occasions where the discipline wasn't as righteous as we pretended it was. What I mean by that is human parents mess up. Sometimes we over-discipline because the children caught us having a bad day, right? Go to your room. And the kids are like, why didn't God just say, what did I do to get sent to my room? And the mom's just there like, oh, thank you. I had to get them. I just, had to, I just needed a minute. All right? The kid really didn't do anything. I mean, we overreact at times in disciplining kids. Sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Our Heavenly Father never does that, ever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Listen, this is vital to your Christian walk. God as Father does not practice retribution. The eternal punishment for your sins has fallen on someone else. That's Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. So now when God disciplines His children, when He allows bad things to happen to us, Sometimes those are just consequences that he allows to happen, consequences of our own decisions. He does it out of a fatherly love. This isn't the picture of God sitting in heaven waiting to hit you with a lightning bolt because you did something wrong. It's a picture of a God who only wants good things for his children, even if that means lovingly chasing us when we need it. And here's the biggest implication of that, especially when it comes to prayer and petitioning God. If you understand this, it'll change the way you pray. If all things are working together for our good, that doesn't mean that all things are good. It means all things, even the bad things that come into your life are being used by God for your benefit. Paul, the Apostle Paul, played three times that what he called a thorn in the flesh would be removed, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. There's a lot of debate about what that is. doesn't matter. He prayed for this to be removed, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient. So what did Paul do? Paul changed his prayer. He said, okay, God, I'll rejoice in my weakness so that the power of Christ can be seen in me. And if we can understand this and take it to heart, we can pray, and when everything in life comes at us and it all seems like it's going wrong, we can say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but you're my Father, and I trust you. Because God is our Father. We have an intimate relationship with Him. The, 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 the big theological word for this is eminence. 
Imminence just means that God is present and active in the world. He isn't some far-off spiritual observer or some non-sentient, you know, kind of spiritish being floating out there. He, he is active in the lives of his children. But when we pray to our Father, we're praying more than just imminence. We're actually praying intimacy. It, verse 13 says he's a father who shows compassion on his children. Compassion here in this, this, this is a difficult word to translate from Hebrew to English because we need about eight English words to really convey the depth of emotion of the single word that's being used here. But compassion is a great word. And when we think of intimacy with our own kids, if, if, you, if you don't have kids, you know, you, you were a kid, so think about it this way. What were the most intimate times with your children? Having them fall asleep in your arms, that's what I hear some people say. You know, usually if you ask, parents will go back to those early days, back before the kids got, you know, old enough to drive you nuts. And so those are the best times, right? And uh, as we get older, those, those times when the parents, where we needed our parents the most, and not only were they there, they knew the right thing to say and the right thing to do in that moment. And you look back on those particular moments and... and um. But look, look back at Romans 8 real quick. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verse 15. We mentioned this verse last week. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. I'm sure you've probably heard this, but... This, the concept of Abba right here is an intimate term. It's an Arabic word for father that we might translate, depending on context, we might translate into something like papa or, or dad, daddy. Like a, a, the, the type of word that a small child would use for their father. And Romans 8 tells us that it's one thing to see God as father in some kind of grand you know, uh, theological sense on paper, but the Spirit of God helps us see God as Father, not just generically, but in a real intimate sense of someone that we can pour our heart out to, a Father who is not far away, but imminent. And then verse 14, flip back to, to Psalm 103 real quick. He's, he's a compassionate father. He knows when you're weak. He knows you're dust. He sees and understands. And he desires more than just transcendence, which would be the opposite of eminence. He wants his children to experience him as father. I heard an illustration on this several months ago, and it stuck with me. I jotted it down because I knew I was going to be eventually getting to this sermon. I was like, oh, this is going to be perfect, but... John, there's a, 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 a theologian named John Goodwin. said he was walking down a street one day and he saw a father and a young son, like a toddler age son, walking together. And they seemed to be kind of having a conversation. He couldn't really understand what they were saying, hearing him. So, but all of a sudden, the dad stopped and he picked the son up and he cradles the son in his arms and he says, son, I love you. 
And the little boy says, Dad, I love you too. And then they kept walking. And, and John Goodwin asked this question. He said, was the child more a son when he was in the father's arms than he was when he was walking on, with him on the street? And the answer to that is obviously no. I mean, he was legally and biologically even loved the same walking beside the father as he was in the arms of the father. But what changed in the moment when the father picked him up and hugged him was that he experienced that love. And that's what God wants of us. He wants us to experience his love, which is why we pray, Abba, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In one sentence, we recognize God as close, Father, and God as God, hallowed, holy. And those come together in prayer, the imminence and the transcendence captured at the beginning of this prayer. John Calvin said, to think of it this way, he said, to hallow the name of God, says means may all the world and all created things see God for who he is, and may his human creatures especially adore and obey him. We would wish God to have honor he deserves. Men should never think of him without the highest reverence. And so when we get to this part of the prayer, we pray God as Father, hallowed be your name. It's the first petition in this prayer. God, we're asking that your name be praised throughout the earth. And, and, and let it begin with me. And those requests, that request should shape all of our other requests. If we start here, we're less tempted to start with ourselves. If, if, if we were left to ourselves to pray, I promise you we'd always start with ourselves. God, I got a, something we need to talk about. I got a problem. But when we pray, hallowed be your name, holy is your name, we can take that to mean everything the Bible says about God. We're, we are praising and honoring not only God as Father, but God as Creator. But we're acknowledging the God of the Bible, who is greater than anything we can imagine. So we pray to God as Father, we pray to God as God, because He is a God who hears and responds as Father, and has the power to answer prayers as God. We even see this in the life of Jesus. Turn, turn to Psalm 22. The only time Jesus doesn't refer to God as Father is on the cross. When he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you look at, at Psalm 22, this is a messianic prophecy of Psalm. It's written by David. It's the beginning of this psalm. That, that It's the very first line of this psalm that Jesus cries out on the cross. It's a prayer. While many people are familiar with the beginning of the psalm, they usually aren't familiar with the end, how the psalm ends. In verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
And then like most Psalms, you see the desperation, the, this desperate cry of the person who's in agony. Like Asaph in Psalm 73, what he said, he said, God, what are you doing? Why, why are the e- e- evil prospering? David writes, God, where are you? Why have you left me to myself? And then verse 11, jump down, says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones of my, are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of the death. More desperate cries to God, explaining the depths of this, this despair. And you can see the imagery and the pain and the struggle that happened to Christ on the cross played out in this messianic psalm. But notice something in verse 22. Remember verse 1, now notice verse 22. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. That was the cry of Jesus from the cross. He could have literally just shouted Psalm 22, and most of the ones standing around would have a lot of the ones standing around would have known exactly what he was referring to. Even when we feel like God is far away, he's not. He's our Father. Even when we feel isolated and alone and desperate, no matter what it seems, God has not hidden his face from you. He hears your cries for help. And one thing we learn from this moment is the same lesson taught at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Yes, he is always God. And every grand thing that means. But he's also our father. We can never get away from the fact that God is our father. We can't think too much of the fact that God is our father. And everything that means for us as believers, as Christians, in our life as we walk through and we struggle through this life, Because God is our Father, because of the work of the cross. Because of the cross, we're granted the grace. We're granted the intimacy. We're granted the special relationship that allows us to pray our Father. Because of the cross, we're grafted into the family of God. So we're the children of God. So when we pray our Father, it's not just a title. We're praying to our Father. Because of the cross, we can approach the throne of God in prayer. Knowing that our prayers are heard, but only because we were granted the gift of faith and repentance and allowed to follow Christ in obedience. And I I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where you are in your spiritual state, but I can tell you this. If you're here today and you want God to be your father, That comes through Jesus Christ. That comes through His Son and what happened to Him on the cross when He died for the sins of His people. 